about marriage, specifically the commitment of marriage. The Pharisees approached Jesus and asked him about divorce and what was lawful or what was okay in regards to divorcing your spouse. And this was a controversial issue. And they're basically considering what Rabbi Shammai said or what Rabbi Hillel says. And Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? What does the word say? And we discussed how, how it's so important to, to look at God's opinion over man's opinion. And Jesus, as he's developing the, the, this doctrine and helping us understand what marriage is about, we put a huge emphasis that we're called to make Christ preeminent. Meaning that regardless of uh, how sacred our marriages are with our spouses, which they are, and Jesus says that our marriage to the Lord is even more sacred. And that's what he invites us into when we commit to him. He's referred to as the groom. He calls us the bride. So for us to have the marriages, to have the family dynamic that we desire, it's going to take putting him first. Now, in this text, he's going to continue different story, different setting, but the theme is going to continue making Christ preeminent. See, he's going to run into this man. He's a rich man. He's referred to as the rich young ruler because he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. And Jesus is going to have this conversation with him. He's seeking truth, he's seeking answers, and we'll discuss that. But Jesus is basically going to get to the heart of the rich young ruler's question and teach him basically what the problem in is in his life, why he's missing something, why he's lacking something. And the truth is the man, the rich young ruler, is lacking relationship with the Lord because he's made money and materialism his God. And that's what Jesus is going to get to. See, Jesus, he'll search our hearts to reveal to us what's truly ruling our lives. Brings me to the title of this teaching. Who rules your heart? You could say who or what rules your heart, because it's not always a who. Sometimes it's a what? Sometimes it's a thing. Sometimes it's a habit. It could really be anything. And I'll discuss that later. But we see the Lord. He always brings it back to the heart. He helps us to understand what's truly ruling our lives, what's truly ruling and reigning over our hearts. There's a verse in first Samuel chapter 16 that points to this. First uh, Samuel chapter 16. God, he's speaking to Samuel and he says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, verse seven, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Okay. David just got anointed king. It's like, no, he's the little runt. Like he's the last, he's the youngest, all these different things. Uh, According to outward appearances, he shouldn't have been the king. But God says, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the hearts. See, men, we have this tendency to look at the appearance of someone. Someone might look like they got it all together. They're, they're, they're spiritually fit, if you will. God's blessing them so much. They, they look like they got a real good relationship with God because everything's playing out in their life. This was the rich young ruler. On the outside, it looked like everything was good. He kept some commandments that pertained to men and he was rich. And, and the belief back then in that culture was if someone was if someone was blessed, if they had, if they had material possessions, the more material possessions they had, the greater favor God had on them. That's what they believed. And we see this throughout the scriptures. This is what the Pharisees believed. And we'll see this is what the disciples believed as well. If the outward appearance, if they have all these positions, if they have all this money, if they have all these different things, then God must love them. Jesus, he's going to completely turn this doctrine upside down. But the point is that regardless of how things look on the outside, Jesus is looking on the inside. He's looking at our hearts, specifically what's ruling over our hearts. If you would with me, I'm going to read the story and then we can pray. And Matthew chapter 19 will be in verses 16 to 30 so that you guys got the big picture and then we'll break it down. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? 
So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you wanted to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last first. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this text, this encounter that you had with this rich young ruler. God, I pray that you would speak to us through this. Lord, maybe we don't uh, identify with with uh, the worship of money and materialism, but maybe there's something else that we can identify with. So I pray that you would bring your words to life in our lives, that we would um, allow uh, these things to really hit home and, and challenge us in our walk with you and our relationship with you, that we would examine our hearts and see where we're at. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in all truth, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, God, and you just would be uh, glorified through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we got the big picture. Matthew chapter 19, looking back at verse 16, okay, he says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks him, hey, what do I need to do to enter eternal life? But we see that there's some deeper stuff going on here. This question, surface level, just appears, what do I, what do I need to do to enter eternal life? But Jesus, as we'll see, is going to get more to the heart of this issue. See, this question is more than a surface level question. This question reveals this man's heart point number one our questions reveal our hearts our questions reveal our hearts so when mark and luke both talk about this story and in mark chapter 10 verse 17 you don't have to flip there uh, it says that this man ran to jesus why is he running to jesus because he's desperate he's in need There's something missing in this man's life. What he's really asking Jesus is not so much about eternal life. It connects. What he's really asking him is what am I missing in my life? What's missing? Jesus, something is missing. See, this man, he had all that the world had to offer. He had possessions. He had he had power. He had all these different things, so much money, but he recognized that there was still something missing. Now, the truth of the matter is, is this man's asking Jesus a question in hopes that Jesus will answer him in a specific way. There's something in him that tells him something's missing, but he really wants Jesus to give him the answer that he wants to hear and not necessarily the answer that he needs to hear. What he wants Jesus to tell him is you're good, okay? You're going to inherit eternal life. You're rich. Obviously, God has favor on you. You're keeping the commandments that pertain to men. So, so you're good. You're going to answer, you're going to enter eternal life. 
But he's asking this question specifically to get this answer from Jesus. But he wouldn't have asked this question if he was confident in his salvation, right? He wouldn't be asking Jesus about eternal life if he knew that he was saved. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, you can write it down, says this, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when people communicate things or they ask questions, okay, sometimes we have to have spiritual ears to hear that what they're asking is not really what they're asking. Okay, these questions often reveal a, a deeper thing that's going on in the heart. And Jesus is going to get to that with this man. Specifically, we see that he has insecurities regarding his salvation. He also recognizes that he's lacking something. He's missing something in his life. But once again, he's asking Jesus a question in hopes that'll give him the answer that he wants to hear. Sometimes we ask questions in hopes that people will tell us what we want to hear and not necessarily tell us the truth. This happens to me all the time. Now, people will come to me and say, hey, I want you to pray for me about this specific thing. I need direction or clarity about something. And a lot of times they're being sincere. But other times, they're asking me a question that God already gave them an answer to. They don't like the answer that God gave them, so they're asking me, so I'll give them a different answer. And so help me, God, that I never give them a different answer than, than God has uh, given them. But that's the truth. They'll say, uh, uh, what do you think about this? What did God say to you? <laughs> Just like you go back to the scriptures. What does the Lord say about that specific thing? Now, I'm not saying don't come to me or someone else to get some direction. There's wisdom in the counsel of many, but be uh, honest with yourself and, and recognize what the heart is of your question. Are you just seeking the answer that you want to hear when God already gave you an answer and you just don't like that answer? See, eventually, if we ask enough people a question and are seeking the specific answer, eventually we'll end up getting the answer from the enemy and not the answer from God. Say 10 people gave me this answer and I know God was speaking to me about this, but I don't like the answer. I don't accept the answer. I'm going to keep seeking another answer until I get the answer that I want. And that's the answer that I'm going to take. And often that's the answer of the enemy. And he's out to steal, kill, destroy. But God, he, he comes to bring life and he brings life through the truth of his word. See, the rich young ruler's question simply exposed his heart again he's questioning his salvation and he knows something is missing something is lacking in his life same thing goes for us when we ask questions sometimes we mean what we say but often there's something deeper especially when it's questions for god especially when it's spiritual questions there's often something deeper than that surface level question and when we come to that place and we're seeking the lord for an answer that's fine it's fine to ask god questions but you better be ready for the answer this man the rich young ruler he wasn't ready for the answer that jesus had for him let's dive back in matthew chapter 19 verse 17 so he said to him why do you call me good no one is good but one that is god Jesus responds to his question with this statement. Why do you call me good? Wait a minute. That's not the answer to what do I have to do to enter eternal life? He starts it off that way. He answers a question with a question because he's addressing the heart of this man. And I'll explain, but let me make the point. Point number two, Jesus addresses the heart. Jesus addresses the heart. See, Jesus, he always gets to the heart of the issue. Sometimes we don't know why we're asking what we're asking. So Jesus will try to bring us to a place of understanding to help us determine what the heart behind our question was. This is why you're really asking this question. That's exactly what he's going to do with the rich young ruler. And you might say, well, I know what's in my heart and I know the heart behind my question. The Bible would say otherwise. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says the, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? 
Meaning we don't even know our own hearts. We don't. We might have a general idea, but I guarantee you somewhere down the road, there's some wickedness that comes out that you didn't even know was there. And so often we'll ask the Lord questions or ask anyone questions, and we don't even really know the heart behind our question. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaking about something in the heart, but the very thing that's spoken might be the surface level thing. And then there's this other deeper thing. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to get to the heart of this question to help the rich young ruler understand why he asked the question to begin with. And again, and he, he starts it off. Why do you call me good? Before Jesus answers his question, he asks him to examine himself and why'd you call me good? Because this rich young ruler is closer to the answer than he realizes just by calling Jesus good. See, in that day, you never referred to as a, a rabbi or a teacher as good teacher. You didn't say good rabbi or good teacher. That word good was reserved for God in God alone. That's why Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one. That is God. So basically, Jesus is saying, if you want to know the answer to the second part of that question, you have to examine why you started the question like that to begin with. Why did you call me good? Again, he's trying to lead him to a place of truth. Jesus is essentially asking the rich young ruler, are you calling me God? You're, you said good teacher. Are you calling me God? He's trying to hint, hint. Yes, I am God. You're calling me good. He's not saying that he's wrong by calling him good. He says, there's no one but good. There's no one good but God. So if you're calling me good, then you are calling me God. And that's such an important truth to understand, to bring him to this deeper truth of why he's asking this question to begin with. The rich young ruler, he first has to recognize and understand uh, the definition of good before he can get to the next part of eternal life. Because his definition of goodness is is likely less than what true goodness is. And Jesus is going to address that as well. So Jesus has to define the terms. We have to define what goodness is before I can talk to you about eternal life. Let's understand what goodness is. Goodness is God. God is the only one that's good. We are not good. And he'll discuss that as well. Basically what Jesus is doing is he had to make the rich young ruler first realize that it's that he's not as good as he thinks. He's not as good as he thinks. And it's not a matter of what he's lacking, it's a matter of who he's lacking. And he's going to make this very clear as we continue Matthew chapter 19, that last part of verse 17. It says, "But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments." He said to him, "Which ones?" Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus makes it plain and simple. If you want to enter eternal life, all you have to do is keep the commandments full-fledged all the time. That's what, that's the definition of goodness, perfection. Okay, that's what he's telling. If you want to enter eternal life on your own terms, you got to never mess up. You got to keep the commandments all the time, never fall short. But there's something interesting here. Jesus doesn't list all 10 commandments. Now we have to remember there are 613 laws that the Jews had. And that's probably why he's asking them, which laws, which commandments? And Jesus is making it simple. He's bringing it back to the 10 commandments, but he really only addresses the commandments that pertain to people. He lists five of the six. He doesn't talk about coveting, but he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a specific reason reason why Jesus addresses the commandments only regarding the people, your relationship with people and not the commandments uh, that pertain to your relationship with God. Because he's not lacking relationship with people, he's lacking relationship with God. And he's going to make this clear as we develop this. And uh, he talks a little more. In verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? So the rich young ruler says, I've done all these things, all these things that I've kept from my youth. Now, does that mean that he never messed up? Not necessarily. In Philippians chapter three, Paul says, I was blameless concerning the law. 
Concerning the law, blameless. Okay, that doesn't mean Paul was perfect. Now, we have to remember in the law, uh, there was an opportunity if you sin to provide sacrifices for specific sins and all these other things. So that's more likely how he's answering this. All these things I kept from my youth, um, if I ever did sin, I provided the proper sacrifice and none of my sins went unatoned for. But he's saying, I've, I've kept all these things. I've, I've done the work. I've done what it takes. I, I'm doing what you're telling me I need to be doing. I'm keeping these commandments that you tell me to keep. He thinks that he can get to heaven by what he does. All these things I've, I've kept from my youth. But the truth in scripture is our righteousness doesn't lead us to heaven. In fact, God has his own opinion about our righteousness. And he says it in Isaiah chapter 64. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he says, But we are all like an unclean thing. All means all. Okay, And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. All our righteousnesses. Any righteous thing, like the greatest thing that we could ever do is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. It's not that those things uh, are bad or God doesn't want us to live righteously. Yes, he does want us to live righteously, but we have to define the terms of what righteousness is. Righteousness is perfection. Our righteousness compared to God's righteousness, it's like filthy rags. See, the rich young ruler had it right from the beginning. He said, good teacher, because it's the Lord's righteousness and his righteousness alone that brings us to eternal life. And Jesus is again trying to bring him to this truth. It's not about what you've done or you do in keeping all these commandments. It's all about what Christ did. Goodness is defined by God because God alone is good. God alone is righteous. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. That's what it takes to enter eternal life. But look what he says here in verse 20, that last part. He says, what do I still lack? I've kept all these things, but I'm still lacking something. This is the truth. When Even when we live righteous lifestyles, sometimes we can even make righteousness or religion our God. I'm just going to do all the right things at the right time. I'm never going to say a swear word. I'm never going to be mean to anyone. I'm going to love everybody. I'm going to do all these things. And we can make that our God. We can make righteousness and religion our God. This is where that man's at and he's still lacking something. He still says something's missing. Uh, I'm doing these things, but I still am lacking something. There's still something missing in my life. Jesus, what is that thing that's still missing? Jesus answers him, but he has another answer in Luke chapter 10. Love this story. There's some similarities here. In Luke chapter 10, you know it. Mary and Martha in this encounter that they have with Jesus. It's very short, so I'll read it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, speaking of Jesus, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. See what happened. Martha was so concerned about serving in the doing of the works. She was distracted by these works to the point that she got frustrated. And she's like, hey, tell Mary to, to, to get up and start helping me. And Jesus is like, you're the one that's in the wrong. You're self-righteous. Your sister, she's the one that's doing the right thing. She's just sitting at my feet and hearing my voice. See, what this rich young ruler is lacking is just that. It's not about what he's doing. It's about the fact that he isn't engaging in an intimate relationship with the Lord. The one thing that's needed, sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him, just spending time with him, he's not doing, he's lacking that one thing. And Jesus is going to make that even more clear as time goes on in this text. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
basically Jesus is asking the rich young ruler that he would put Jesus first in his life. Now, this doesn't mean that every single believer, in order to follow Jesus, must sell everything that they have to follow the Lord. Now, if he asks you to do that, go for it. Praise God. He's probably got some awesome adventure for you. You'll be a missionary somewhere. But that's not what the text is saying, that everyone has to sell everything. There is a truth that we're called to forsake all and be willing to forsake all to follow him. But this statement was specifically for the rich young ruler. Go sell all you have and then come follow me. Jesus is literally asking him to lay down his idol because Jesus wants to be the one that's ruling in his heart. Point number three, Jesus desires to rule our hearts. Jesus desires to rule our hearts. See, this wasn't a money issue, okay? The love of money is the root of all evil, but money in itself isn't a bad thing, okay? It's it's our perspective of it and where we put it in our priorities. It's, it's not a money issue. This is a heart issue. Again, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter because this man has something else ruling over his life. See, Jesus addressed some of the commandments that pertain to his relationship with people, but now what he's doing is bringing them back to the first two commandments. Okay, you might be doing these things okay, but what about the first commandments that God gave? Well, let's look at them in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, we see a list of the Ten Commandments. And look at the first two. Uh, picking it up in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Basically saying, you can't have any other gods before me. You can't worship idols. He's getting to the heart of the rich young ruler's problem. Yeah, he might have good relationships with people, but he's worshiping another god. Money and materialism has become this rich young ruler's god. He made an idol out of this thing. He ident- his identity is completely wrapped up in how much he has and, and how much power and possessions and all these different things that he's attained. See, Jesus is asking him to give up that identity. He's asking him to lay down those idols, to not put another God before him so that he can give him something more, so that he can bless his life because he knows that if he can lay these things down, forsake all and follow him. Jesus is going to give him an abundant life on earth, a more fulfilling life. He won't be lacking. And not only that, answer to his question, then you'll have eternal life. But it has to be putting God first, allowing him to rule and reign in our hearts. Now we can look at this money and materialism and say, hey, I really don't have an issue with money. I'm good with giving, like I give a lot and I don't even have any money, so I don't have a problem with it. Um, But the, the, the truth is that idolatry can really be anything. Idolatry is putting any other God before Jesus. That's the first commandment. When we put anything as priority over Jesus. Yeah, it could be money. Could be sexual immorality. It could be addiction. It could be a bad habit. It could be family. It could be friends. It could be, it could be watching TV. It could be Facebook. Anything that we put before God is idolatry. We're making that thing the priority over Christ. And he's saying, you gotta lay that thing down. If Facebook's ruling your life, we got issues, okay? If, 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 if TV or even family, even the good things, even your spouse, that happens a lot. And we discussed it last week, but we often make, turn our spouses into an idol. What we do is we had a time where we were worshiping God and, and we had such a tight relationship with God. And then God starts to bless us as a believer. And maybe he provides a, a beautiful wife or a handsome husband that's spiritual and has all the, everything going on for them. And we begin to worship the blessing and not the blessing giver. And that's where Jesus is coming from here. We can't allow anything to rule in our hearts over him. He asks us to sell those things, to get rid of those things. I'm not telling you to get rid of your wife or your family. Okay, don't hear me say that. That's not what I'm saying. But it's shifting the priority. 
It's putting him first. It's making him preeminent. He wants to rule and reign in our lives. And this can be very difficult sometimes because we can, like I said, have that tight relationship with God and and we're so sold out for Jesus. That's all we're focused on. And then God starts blessing us. And again, we start worshiping the blessings. And sometimes we fall in love with the blessings. And sometimes it's a good love. Sometimes it's it's like the love of a wife or a child or family or whatever. And sometimes it's a bad love. Sometimes it's a, an addiction or a bad habit or just something that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. But the truth of the matter is God's not afraid to tell us to let go of the thing that we love the most if that thing's taking priority over him. What do I mean? You remember the story, Abraham and Isaac, right? God had promised Abraham this son. Uh, who through his seed bless all the nations, fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. But God had promised Abraham this son, and this promise wasn't fulfilled for decades. And finally, the promise is fulfilled a few decades later. Eh, there's debate about how old Isaac was. Anyways, we see that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? Put him on the altar. Sacrifice him. This is the thing that you love the most in this world. I want you to sacrifice him. What was God doing there? He was testing Abraham's faith. He was seeing if his priorities shifted, if he was still putting God first. And what did Abraham do? He was willing, right? It's a crazy story. Really weird if you don't understand. But what he was basically doing, he wasn't going to have Abraham sacrifice Isaac. He was just making sure that Abraham had his priorities straight. He was worshiping the promise giver over the promise. And we could fall into that. The Lord will often test us with that to make sure our priorities are in check. Now, we see with Abraham and Isaac, he didn't make Abraham sacrifice Isaac, right? It's funny, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham knew that God could raise him from the dead. He knew if he did sacrifice Isaac, that God would be able to raise him from the dead. So he was fully confident in God's promise. He's going to, I don't know why he's telling me to do this, but he's going to fulfill his promise and give me the son. He might have to bring him back to life or whatever. I'm just going to be obedient to what God told me to do. So in Abraham's case, he didn't make him sacrifice that thing that he loved. He was seeing if he was willing to do it. See, in our case... He might not make us fall through, follow through with it, but he also might make us fall through with it. And I'm not talking about sacrificing family members in that sense, but sacrificing some things that we love sometimes. Am I, am I spending so much more time doing this thing or with this person than I am with the Lord? Is the Lord really taking priority in my life? Because that's what he's trying to get across to this rich young ruler. This rich young ruler, he's interested about God. He might even have some love for God, but not not enough love to lead him to a place that he's willing to lay down his idols and completely follow Jesus. That's what he's asking each of us to do, that we would surrender all and follow him. Matthew chapter 19, verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is one of the saddest verses in all of scripture. Jesus tells him what he has to do. Hey, just put me first and follow me. Sell all your stuff, follow me. I'm going to give you greater blessings in heaven, okay? But the rich young ruler, he wasn't ready to do it. He chose to walk away and he ended up walking away sorrowfully. See, when we're not willing or we refuse to let go of that thing that God's telling us to let go of, we will always walk away sorrowfully. Okay, we will never walk away and say, I'm glad I made that decision. I know God told me to let go of that thing and, and I didn't and I'm glad I made that. That's not going to happen. It, it won't happen. We will always walk away with regret. We'll always walk away sorrowfully. We'll always walk away. What could have been if I would have really surrendered to God? If I would have really given that thing up in my life, how could have my, could my life be different? And you know what else is interesting here? In the next verse, it doesn't say that Jesus ran him down to bring him back. Jesus didn't run after the rich young ruler and say, I'm sorry that I told you to let go of that thing. I was a little too hard on you. No, no, no. Point number four, Jesus isn't moved when our hearts lead us astray. Jesus isn't moved when our hearts lead us astray. We see this truth throughout scripture. Let me point you to one verse in Psalm 81. Psalm 81 Verse 12 says, So I have given them over to their own stubborn heart to walk 
in their own counsels. The Lord will give us over to our hearts. If we continue to pursue something specific, again, habit, addiction, materialism, money, whatever it could be, bad relation, whatever. When we continue to choose that thing and we get hard-hearted and stubborn, whatever, God, it's, it's, it's this thing plus you. And if I can't have this thing, then I'm not following you. When we get to that place, the Lord just lets us do it. Okay, this is the idol that you want to worship. This is the God you want to serve. Let me know how it turns out. And the hope is, it's not that he forsakes us. The hope is that we would realize that God doesn't fulfill us and we would turn back to the one God that does. See, Jesus, when we make that decision, no, God, I won't lay this down. I'm going to continue to pursue this thing in my life. We can't expect him to apologize. He's not going to apologize for speaking hard truth into our life. He's going to stand to his guns. This is what I told you to let go of and you haven't done it. I'm not, he's not going to change his mind. His mind won't be changed. If you spoke that truth and he told you to let go of that thing, he's going to continue to remind you until the point where reminding doesn't do any good anymore. See, Jesus, he's not okay with us putting idols before him. But if we're not willing to let those idols go, 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 then we're truly not worthy to fully follow him. When we put those idols in our life, and some of you may be, uh, yeah, I'm a believer and I love Jesus. And, you know, I've forsaken this thing, but this thing keeps coming up in my life. And that thing, whatever it is, whatever the idol is, that thing's preventing you from fully following Jesus. It's a distraction, just like Mary was distracted by works. She was distracted by serving. That can become an idol. Ministry can become an idol. You've heard me say it before. Our hearts are little idol factories. We'll make an idol out of anything because we were created to worship. We were created to worship. So we'll worship anything we can get our hands on. But we've got to continue to put our priorities in check and make sure we're worshiping the God that created us and not the things that he created. Jesus addresses that through Paul in Romans chapter 1. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus has this conversation with the rich young ruler, right? Rich young ruler departs, and now he addresses the disciples. Why? Because this message is for them as well. It wasn't just for the rich young rulers. He needed the disciples to understand this truth as well. Again, the culture believed that uh, rich men, they had favor from God, they were going to inherit eternal life. But that isn't true. And Jesus will further develop that, but he develops it by saying this. He says, verse 23, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that a rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's harder. Why? Because when people have all the riches, when they have all the wealth, when everything in life is comfortable, uh, their tendency is not to seek out for God. I used to have a pastor that would always tell us, uh, you never realize God is all you need until God is all you have. And so often, most of us, we won't come to God until we have nothing left. And then we realize, oh my gosh, okay, he's real, he's legit. Those that are rich, those that have a lot of wealth, those that are extremely comfortable, sometimes they don't get to that place of brokenness. So they don't see their need for God. But we also see this in our culture, specifically in America, you see some of the richest people in this world taking their own lives. Why? Just like the rich young ruler. Something's lacking. I'm missing something. I might might have all that the world has to, to offer, but there's still something missing. There's still something that I'm longing for, something that I'm desiring and I can't find it. So they end their lives. So we see riches doesn't equate to blessedness. And then Jesus, he says, this illustration, it is easier, verse 24, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Okay. Jesus had humor. Okay. He wasn't just like this, like, mm, like, you know, well, he, yes, he's loving. Yes. He speaks hard truth, but he had humor too. This is a, this was a joke for Jesus. He's saying he's speaking truth, but he's using a funny thing. You can't make a camel go through the eye of a needle. I don't care how hard you try, how strong you are. That ain't happening. You're not putting a camel through the eye of a needle. What's the point? 
He's trying to communicate that it's impossible for us to do something to get us into eternal lives. Our, uh, eternal life. Our attempts at righteousness, our attempts at works is not going to save us. It's like trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not happening. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gift from God. It's nothing that we do, that, that, that we work out, that we earn. No, no, no. It's a gift that we receive. That's what he's getting at. They were so focused on, on righteousness and their works and what they did, but that's like trying to make a camel go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. It's not happening. And then he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See, they were astonished once again because they believed what the Pharisees believed, that the rich were inheriting the kingdom of God. Because they were rich, that means that God was blessing them. God had favor on them, so they're astonished. Wait, rich people aren't getting into heaven? What does that mean? So they're a little confused now. Their doctrine, their theology was flipped upside down. Then it says, verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What is he saying? Salvation is only possible with God. It's not about what we do. It's not about how hard we try to get that camel through that needle. It's never going to happen. It's about trusting in the Lord. It's about pursuing relationship with him. Only through Christ's righteousness, his righteousness alone can we be saved. The just shall live by faith. It's by faith. It's through grace. That's where our salvation comes from. It's not about what we do. It's about who he is. It's about what he's done. This is impossible with man to get into heaven, but it is possible with God and God alone. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Peter's concerned about what he's going to gain Jesus brings clarity and says, you're going to gain a lot. And he talks about these, uh, the, these 12 thrones that the disciples will sit on. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we see these 24 elders with these 24 thrones. And many believe that 12 of those thrones are for the disciples and 12 of those thrones are, are for the, uh, the men that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. And some believe that it represents the church in its entirety. And we see some other references to these thrones. I won't get into it too much, but there's a truth in scripture that not only the disciples, but the church, we're going to rule and reign with Christ in the, in the millennium. During the thousand year reign of Christ, we're going to rule and reign over the Jews that were saved and the tribulation saints that got saved during that time. Don't have enough time to go into this, but that's basically what he's talking about here. And he says, not only are you going to rule and reign with me, he says, verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or, or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Peter, worried about what he lost and what he's going to gain. And Jesus is like, you have no idea. What you forsook, I'm going to bless you with a hundredfold. That doesn't mean that he's going to bless him with a hundred wives, okay? And a and hundred children, okay? That might not be a blessing, a hundred children. No, in all sincerity, that's a lot. He's just saying a hundredfold in the sense that you're going to have so much blessing, you're not going to know what to do with it. I'm going to bless you abundantly, regardless of you of what you let go in of in this world, God's going to give us so much more in the next and sometimes even in this see when we choose to forsake all and follow jesus when we choose to lay down those idols and worship him and him alone it's easy for us to get in the thought process of i don't want to let go of this thing 
this sin is comfortable. This relationship is comfortable. This habit is comfortable. This thing is comfortable. And we get so distracted by what we're going to lose. But Jesus is saying, don't even worry about that. What you're going to gain is far beyond what you'll ever lose, what you'll ever forsake in this world. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, last verse. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. See, the disciples, again, they thought that the richest people would be first in the kingdom of God. The richer you are, the more favored you were. So the rich people on this earth would be the richer people in the world to come in heaven. And Jesus, again, is saying, no, no, that's not how it works here. He flips the logic upside down once again. We don't get to be first by trying to be first, by striving for power, by striving for possessions, by striving for fame and position and all these things. No, no, no. We get to be first. By laying those things down, by not focusing on those things, by identifying with the lowly, by seeking the lowly position, not from trying to make a name for ourselves, but trying to make a name for Jesus, by, by lifting his name up, by exalting his name. When we choose to be last and let him be first, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not about what we gain on this earth. It's about what we're willing to let go of. And when we were willing to let go of these things, then the Lord says, you made yourself last. I'm going to make you first. I'm going to make you greater. I'm going to make you greatest. Now, in all reality, we know that the Lord is first and he'll always be first. Called to make Christ preeminent in our lives. And that's part of this phrase too. Whoever is last will become first. Jesus, though he was God in all his glory, he left his throne to come down to earth as a man, not just a man, but a poor man. Jesus made himself last. And if in Philippians chapter two, it says, because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, because he came last as a bond servant, as a poor man, what did God do? God exalted him and given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus chose to be last and he became first. They're not becoming first by seeking to be first. They're gonna become greater by seeking to be last and lay down their identity and become those bond servants and be obedient to the point of death. And then when they humble themselves, then God will exalt them. But the truth here is none of us are gonna be first. None of us will ever be first. Jesus is always going to be first and that's his message. He is first, but are we making him first? Are we allowing him to rule and reign over our hearts? Are we giving him complete control of our lives or are we putting ourselves first and Jesus last? Because if we're doing that, we're like the rich young ruler. And in his case, he walked away sorrowfully. When we put ourselves first, and what we desire or idols or sin or habits or whatever, you name it, we're putting ourselves first. We're putting the Lord last and he won't stand for that. Not because it makes him angry. Yeah, it frustrates him, but because he wants something more for us. He wants us to let those things go so that he can give us something better, that he can bless us with an abundant life, a fulfilling life. This man, he walked away knowing he was lacking something. He walked away sorrowfully. He was rich, he had it all, but he was still missing something. The thing that he was missing, once again, was that relationship with the Lord. Maybe you do have a relationship with the Lord. And maybe there are seasons of your life that you forsake all and then you pick things back up again. And you know, even as this message is being communicated, that there's an idol that keeps coming up. It just keeps coming up. You try to let it down, but it just keeps coming up. And maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's, it's even good things like family and friends and all these other things. Whatever is taking priority over Jesus Christ, he asks us, hey, lay those things down. If you want to be worthy to follow me, be willing to not follow those things and to choose to follow me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. We don't gain these things by seeking the things. We gain this satisfaction. We gain this fulfillment by seeking Jesus and trusting him to provide the rest. Now, maybe you're in that place and you're like, you're talking about idols and all these things and like nothing that you said like hits home at all. Maybe it did in the past, but it doesn't right now. And hopefully you're in a place where Jesus Jesus is preeminent in your life and you don't got any idols that you're dealing with. 
If you're in that place and, and you just don't know, you're confused, there might be something. I'm not sure what it is. Remember, our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things, right? So we have to ask God who knows our hearts. We don't know our hearts. God to know our hearts, to, to come in and expose our hearts to ourselves. Now, there's a prayer in Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24, and it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're not sure, if that's you, and you're like, ah, there might be something, I don't know what it is. Pray that prayer. But remember, when you ask God to search your heart, when you ask him to lead you in the way everlasting, when you ask him to expose any wickedness in you, don't be like the rich young ruler and just seek the answer that you're looking for. Be ready for the answer that Jesus has for you because it might be painful. It might be something that you haven't thought of. And he might tell you, hey, there's this thing that's ruling your heart, that's ruling your life, and it's got to go. I'm asking you to lay it down. And again, he doesn't ask us to lay those things down because he wants to take something from us. No, he asks us to lay those things down because he wants something for us. He wants something so much more for us than we could ever even want for ourselves. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, abundance. He wants so much satisfaction, so much for fulfillment for us. But if we're not willing to let those things go, then we'll always be like the rich young ruler. We will always walk away sorrowfully when we are ready to let those things go. We get to enter into his joy. We get to experience that abundance. We get to experience that fulfillment because we're putting God on the throne. We're allowing him to rule and reign in our hearts. He deserves it. He's, he's proved himself as, a, as, a, as an amazing king, as a gracious king. But are we making him king? Are we allowing him to be king in our lives? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the encounter that you had with the rich young ruler and the conversation you had with your disciples, Lord. God, I pray if there's anything that's in our hearts that's taken preeminence, Lord, that's, that's taken your place, that we're putting before you, God, I pray that you would reveal those things to us and you would give us the strength to lay down those things. Lord, it's, it's, it's not always easy to lay down those things, especially when it's things that we've been comfortable with uh, our whole lives or uh, a, a huge portion of our life. But I pray, God, by the power of your spirit that we would be able to lay down those things, that we would make you king. Lord, just as we talked about Good Sunday, considering that you came in as the king, the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the rightful king, and they didn't recognize it. They didn't see it. They thought you were going to be a different kind of king, and they didn't put you in that place of king. Lord, but we know through your cross and what you did on this earth, you you proved that you are the rightful king. And I pray once again that we would make you that king. We would allow you to rule and reign in our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.